All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Gunther Glieben Glauchen Globen. All right. Yeah, I got something to say. Welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and I am so glad you have joined us for today's episode because we have got a great one lined up. First, I've got Jeff Angers, the president of the Center for Sport Fishing Policy in the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio, and we are going to talk fishing and politics. I'll also be counting down my top 10 top water lures for targeting speckled trout, so we'll be popping inshore for a bit today. Hey, and as a great teaching moment, did you know that speckled trout aren't actually trout? They're drums, and even though they are closely related to gray trout, yellowfin trout, and sea trout, they share more in common with a redfish or a black drum or croaker than they do with a trout family. They're not members of the Salmonidae family like trout, but are members of the Cyanidae family of drums. This is probably most evident during spawning season when the males will make a light drumming sound. It, it, it almost sounds like they're purring or clicking. It's really kind of cool. And since specks are a mainstay of inshore fishing from Maryland south down the Atlantic coast around Florida and across the Gulf Coast to Texas, and even showing up occasionally north of the Delaware Bay up to Cape Cod, my top 10 today should be of particular interest to inshore anglers from Massachusetts to Texas. So we'll talk about how to bring those yellow mouths, yellow mouth speckled beauties to the surface for some adrenaline pumping top water action. So stick around for that. Hey, in this episode, I'll also be cracking open a bottle of Four Roses small batch during the bourbon break. As always, if you like the show, or even if you don't, please share our links with everyone you know. And if you ever need it and you want to make a comment or leave a question about anything on the show, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com, or you can use the comment option on any of the platforms through which you've accessed the broadcast. So with that said, let's shove off and get to casting. All right, we have got a fantastic guest today, and I've really been looking forward to this opportunity to sit and talk with today's guest, because in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today, we have got Jeff Angers, the president of the Center for Sport Fishing Policy. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Center for Sport Fishing Policy's mission is to maximize opportunities for saltwater recreational anglers by organizing, focusing, and engaging recreational fishing stakeholders to speak with one voice to shape federal marine fisheries management policies. That is, the CSP works to influence policymakers in support of the legislation that affects us as saltwater anglers. And frankly, this is a critical need within the saltwater recreational fishing world, given the arrays of kinds of fishing that saltwater anglers engage across the country and the variety of both local and federal policies that impact our fishing lives. So I, for one, am grateful for the work that Jeff Angers and the CSP do on behalf of the saltwater anglers across the country and have really been looking forward to sitting down and talking talking about the CSP and about saltwater fishing policy. So Jeff, thanks so much for being here and thanks for all the work that you're doing. Well, Sid, thank you. Um, we appreciate um, uh, all that you do because you have found a way to communicate uh, so well and so effectively to, to, to saltwater anglers all over the country. What a great blessing it is um, to, to have the fishing professor uh, teaching today. Oh, thanks, Jeff. So let's start off easy and get into this. And let me ask you to talk a little bit about what the Center for Sport Fishing Policy does and the history of that organization. Well, you know, we try to to gather all uh, all of the people that are involved with government affairs in Washington under one umbrella and make certain that as we speak to lawmakers and policymakers, that we speak with one voice. Um, the, the, um, the, the various issues in all the various regions uh, all over the country require unified principles and unified communication. And 
We've got lots of partners that are engaged with what we do, lots of for-profit partners that, that are in the business of selling widgets um, to saltwater anglers and lots of nonprofit partners um, who, who, are, who run large membership associations like, um, like, like ASA, the American Sport Fishing Association, CCA, the Coastal Conservation Association, the Billfish Foundation, um, IGFA, Bonefish Tarpon Trust, um, so many others, and all of those organizations have uh, have have experience and expertise in the government affairs space. As we look to ensure that 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 regulations and laws um, are uh, are focused on what can uh, can facilitate a a healthy recreational uh, fishery, and we try to make sure that we gather everyone on a regular basis just to make sure that that we're all singing from the same song sheet how did we get here i mean recreational fishing hasn't been recreational sport saltwater fishing hasn't been a thing you know since really the 40s or 50s but now we're to a point where we've got management policies and federal policies that really have an impact on how we fish Uh, i mean is it just that the industry has gotten so big well, you know, Sid, um, back in 1976, when when uh, when you and I were a little younger, um, the federal government passed a law called the Magnuson-Stevens Act. When we were kids, we saw lots of foreign fishing fleets fishing right up to our shores, and they were taking the great bounty of America and taking it back to their to, to their home countries. The, 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 the most important thing that the Magnuson-Stevens Act did was it, was, um, was it, was it established our exclusive economic zone from three to 200 miles um, offshore. And we told those foreign fishing fleets, you're not welcome. And then generally speaking, most of the other um, countries that were engaged in fisheries did the same thing. But back in the 1970s, the focus of the Magnuson-Stevens Act um, was all about the home states of Senator Magnuson, Washington, and Senator Stevens, uh, which, which, which was Alaska. So the focus of the law was always on marine commercial fishing. Um, and it was always about the Pacific Northwest and the North Pacific. You and I both are from the Southeast. We know that the fastest growing segment of activity in marine waters is marine recreational fishing and boating. The Magnuson-Stevens Act was really not designed to properly manage marine recreational fishing because it was so focused on commercial. And, and you know clearly recreational fishing and commercial fishing are fundamentally different endeavors and they should be managed differently. So we've been trying to work through uh, NOAA Fisheries, through the Department of Commerce, to achieve that recognition, and we've been uh, been um, been been lucky to get done what we've got done, but we've still got a long way to go. Excellent. So one of the things you all do at the CSP is you have a PAC. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the uh, what the CSP PAC does and how it functions? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so um, we're organized under Section five hundred one c four of the Internal Revenue Code, and we have a uh, we've got a pack. It's called the Center for Sport Fishing Policy Political Action Committee, and our members um, can contribute to our pack. Uh, and the people who contribute to to our pack, the members of CSP. Um, are people who are who are interested in a robust recreational fishery, um, who are interested in access and abundance, because those are the two things that drive a recreational fishery. Um, um, and as we raise funds from people who are interested in well-managed, well-conserved fisheries, we look to the members of Congress who are similarly concerned. Um, you know, the, the um, uh, Congress is big. There's, there's, there's 100 senators and 435 uh, uh, House members, um, and all of them can ultimately vote on a marine resource uh, um, issue. 
but the people who vote on them all the time serve on two particular committees, the House Natural Resources Committee and the Senate Commerce Committee. So our focus is not on on 535. It's on uh, it's on about 50 members of Congress who are focused on 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 making a difference on our on, on our issues. We are not a large pack, but when you combine uh, CSP's pack with ASA's pack with NMMA's pack, and the latter is called Boat Pack, we uh, we are almost always uh, marching in lockstep into the offices of various members of Congress who uh, who know that that access opportunity um, and and abundance is what drives recreational fishing. Reminds me of a conversation you and I had a few years ago, and you made the very poignant statement at the time that fishing shouldn't be political, but it is. Why did fishing become political? And is it really just about the money? Well, you know, um, um, we live in very political times, Sid, and I know you see that every day. Um, you know, while fishing is political, uh, you know, I view fish as the most political animal of all um, because, uh, because people are always wondering who's going to get the fish. Is it going to be me and my friends or you and your friends? Um, that's what I mean about it being political. When I say that it's political, I don't mean that it's partisan. Um, we work very hard to ensure that, uh, that fisheries management never becomes partisan. You and I both know that the pendulum is always swinging. Uh, it, it's always moving. And whether it's only moving a bit or whether it's swinging quickly, it's always moving. And there are just as many people, uh, there are just as many members of each party who, uh, who, who enjoy fishing with their families, who understand the economic impact of marine recreational fishing in their particular district, whether they live in a coastal uh, district or a coastal state or not. Um, and so we have, have been striving to ensure bipartisan giving, bipartisan support, um, because although fishing is political in the sense of who gets the fish, it does not need to be partisan. And we want, want to ensure that it never gets that way either. That's, that's fantastic. You know, as you're talking, I realize that a lot of people out there, a lot of anglers who are not directly tied to the recreational fishing industry, don't ever really get to see just how big the fishing industry is. And a lot of times when I tell people things like, there are more than 11 million licensed saltwater anglers in the U.S. and that saltwater fishing contributes $18.3 billion to the, to the gross national product and that saltwater anglers spend more than $14 billion annually on saltwater angling goods and services. They always seem stunned at the size of the industry. So maybe you could talk a little bit about just how big saltwater fishing is in the United States. Well, uh, thank you, Sid. Um, that's a great way to start it. You know, this is a um, saltwater recreational fishing um, is big business. Um, even by uh, even by NOAA's numbers, um, we generate about $68 billion in sales impacts every year. And needless to say, during COVID, when everyone was, was looking for opportunities to, to get outside and do anything in the great outdoors, um, those Sales impacts are not yet recorded, but they're going to be huge. Um, you know, saltwater recreational fishing hits all 50 states. Um, you, know, you know, so often people think, you know, that a coastal community where you and I might, uh, might launch from um, is, uh, is uh, that, that, that they respect saltwater recreational fishing so much they appreciate it because of the fuel sales and the baits and, and and the adult beverages and the groceries and everything else that you might buy at the local grocery store but even the, the interior states um you know the for instance the foundry for yamaha's stainless steel propellers is in is is, is, is in indiana and the, the state of indiana um the Members of Congress from Indiana recognize the jobs that are directly tied to that to, to that particular foundry. Um, our friends at Brunswick 
or getting ready to build an enormous distribution facility in, in, in the state of Indiana. Um, our friends at Bass Pro Shops are based in, in Missouri, and they certainly move a whole lot of saltwater tackle from there. Ours is a huge business. You know, when you look at outdoor recreation, over 2.2% of GDP is generated by, by, by outdoor recreation. And the fastest growing segment of that is, uh, is recreational fishing and boating. Those are big numbers. You know, we are bigger than agriculture in the United States. That's quite a comparison. Um, and we've worked hard at the Department of Commerce to gain the recognition to ensure that the that the, the BEA, the Bureau of, of Economic Analysis, is uh, is counting uh, is is counting our our, our our economic impact and the sub and the sub accounts that identify recreational fishing. Uh, it, uh, it's it's made a huge difference both in the Trump administration and in the Biden administration. That's fantastic. You know, one of the things um, that I've written about this quite a bit is where I do that comparison of what we're bigger than, because that always seems to shock people. You know, we're bigger than the music industry, bigger than the exercise industry, bigger than the NFL. You know, the, it's a, a massive uh, number of people involved with a lot of money being, uh, being put out there. Um, right. So, let me uh, switch on you a little bit here. And the CSP used to be called the Center for Coastal Conservation. And your organization has always been very forward about its commitment to marine conservation. Could you talk a little bit about CSP's involvement in conservation efforts? Um, yes. You know, our uh, um, we've worked for, for a long time to gather all of our partners together in their, in, in, in their habitat work, in their membership growth work in their resources work um, and particularly to ensure uh, to ensure the appropriate partnerships with with state with state fish and game agencies you know um, um, the states have always been our willing partners in conservation and management um, and the state state agencies like uh, like the FWC, like Texas Parks and Wildlife, uh, do an amazing job um, with with both managing resources and managing access to those resources. Um, we wish that the federal government would would view marine recreational anglers in federal waters as the states do. Um, and we find now, Sid, that the uh, that that the head of, uh, of the National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, Janet Coit, um, who who was the state director from the state of Rhode Island, um, she has that she has that customer service mentality, and she has brought a culture to the National Marine Ser uh, National Marine Fisheries Service, which is. Um, really a welcome change there. Um, you know, our focus on conservation has really always been about bringing partners together um, and making sure that we, that we, we, we were able to educate uh, and then, um, uh, and, and then facilitate. So we feel like we're in a pretty good place as uh, we come into the, to the fishing season this year. That's for sure. Excellent. One of the big things going on right now in D.C. and in the saltwater fishing world is the talk about the 30 by 30 uh, program um, and the importance of that right now. Could you talk a little bit about that and what's going on in D.C.? Yes. Um, you know, the um, the um, 30 by 30, um, the, the 30 by 30 initiative was renamed by the Biden administration to America the Beautiful. And the focus here. Um, really originally came from the UN Convention on Biodiversity. Um, they were focused on trying to conserve 30% of the Earth's land and water by the year 2030 um, for the purpose of ensuring um, biodiversity. That is certainly a worthy goal. And as governments around the world look to achieve that goal, um, we in the in the outdoor sportsman's community um, have really been focused 
on making sure that the Biden White House understands that we are America's original conservationists, that we in the recreational fishing world have been paying the freight for conservation and management for 100 years. And all of the, uh, the sound management and policy that, that has made the North American model of conservation and management the envy of the world needs to be considered as this administration looks to catalog what 30% of America is already conserved because we don't need to be throwing around some you know some some kind of arbitrary um, regulations just to get to an arbitrary number we have uh, have tremendous stewardship in place um, in states in federal lands and with privately held lands so i can report that the biden administration has been very very welcoming of um, of this uh, of this type of recognition, um, there are uh, there are many countries in the world who have uh, who have precisely no areas that are conserved, no areas that are well stewarded, um, and we find ourselves in a good place because we've done it right for a long time, and the Biden administration has certainly certainly been recognizing that. Well, thanks for your work with that, because that is certainly crucial. So obviously in a venue like this, a podcast like this, actually, we call it the Rodcast, which is you know kind of cool, but uh, nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. You know, obviously, we can't take the time to address all the policies and legislative actions that CSP is tracking. But there's one part of the CSP action items that I think is really important and that I'd like to get you to talk a bit about. And you kind of mentioned this uh, a little bit already. And, you know, that was that on December 31st of 2018, President Trump signed into law the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act, which was a revision of the Magnuson-Stevenson Act that uh, you mentioned from 1976 as being important to how policy gets played out. And that was a big revision that was one of the most important victories for recreational anglers in the U.S. In US history because it was the first time that Magnuson-Stevenson really took up recreational fishing on par with commercial fishing interest. And the CSP has maintained a modern Fish Act progress report since that time, grading how well the provisions of the act have been implemented. So what are the CSP's current, current thoughts on how the MFA policies have been applied over the last four years? Well, um, thank you for bringing this up because this is, uh, this is really central to, uh, to what we do, to what we care about. Um, you know, first, let me kind of start with the beginning of the Modern Fish Act. Um, um, about 10 years ago in 2013, um, Johnny Morris of Bass Pro Shops and Scott Deal from Maverick Boats got together and formed what was called the Morris Deal Commission on Saltwater Fisheries Management. We wanted to, uh, to establish what it was that we were for as a recreational uh, fishing community. There's a lot of regulations and red tape and challenges that, that we can be against uh, and that we have fought, but we needed to be for uh, some particular reforms. And Johnny and Scott um, led the group that laid out six key, key priorities at the 2014 Miami Boat Show. Um, and the Morris Deal report was 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 heralded. Then it was socialized to really all of our partners throughout all of the space, both in the in the, in the nonprofit world and in the federal policy world. And and ultimately, all of that was converted to a piece of legislation in, in 2017, the Modern Fish Act, um, which uh, which passed and, and was signed by President Trump um, at the end of 2018. Um, that um, that law guides NOAA Fisheries um, to a to a firm understanding, as I mentioned before, that recreational and commercial fishing are different endeavors, and they need to be managed differently. Um, you know, I would often note with various members of Congress, you know, um, when you consider that a particular commercial fishery may have a quota 
of you know 2.3 metric tons, what percentage of uh, of 2.3 metric tons do my three children get when we go out fishing? You know, it's clear that uh, that the two that 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 the two ways to pursue fish are different. Um, and we were very pleased that the Congress passed the law to ensure that different tools could be used to manage recreational fisheries rather uh, separate from, from commercial fisheries. Um, since the law passed, we've been publishing about every six months an update on our assessment um, of how NOAA Fisheries has been doing with the, the implementation. Currently, um, um, we've got a simple red, green, uh, red, yellow, green uh, chart where the, the agency has one red, one green, and three yellows as the implementation continues to roll out. Um, but we know that it takes a long time for agencies to implement um, new laws, for, for, for agencies to implement new ways of doing things. And we also know that, you know, typically um, federal government agencies like the way that they have always been doing things and they don't necessarily like being told to change even when they're told to change by congress um, so we think that we have uh, made major progress um, we uh, we hope that soon the modern fish act uh, progress report can get to, to all greens we want it to be to, to be all greens my sense is that the national marine fishery service Wanted to be all greens as well, and we've had a very open and, and collaborative process as we discuss our grades and the experts that have, that have helped to arrive at them. So uh, I would direct your listeners uh, to our website, and it's on our homepage, uh, sportfishingpolicy.com, and the reference is the Modern Fish Act Progress Report. Well, thanks. Yeah, you. Um, I'm glad you brought up the Morris Deal Commission, and you sort of anticipated my next question. Uh, because one of the things, you know, as you know, I've written quite a bit about uh, the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act and that history and uh, Morris Deal Report. But one of the things I think is important about the Morris Deal Report was that it laid out realistic potential for what the sport fishing community could do and what policy could be put in place from within the industry, from anglers, rather than waiting for top-down management. You know, uh, fishing fishing always has this edge of freedom tied to it. And the idea that the federal government is just going to impose policy without input, to me, is always kind of a frightening thing. And so I think one of the important things about that Morris Deal Commission report was the opportunity for the citizenry, for those who fish, to step in and say, if we're going to be managed, then here's how we need to be managed. And I, I found that to always be a very important part of that process that led us to Trump signing of the MFA. Yes, Sid, you know, um, Johnny Morris and Scott Deal are, are perhaps the two most recognized names in marine recreational fishing and boating. Um, they are both uh, true visionary leaders. And when I tell you they rolled up their sleeves and they got in the weeds from day one, it was remarkable because they're both running enormous companies and those companies don't run themselves. Um, they, uh, um, Scott and Johnny both um, uh, were, were just incredible leaders for, for, for our industry um, and they, continue to do uh, to, to, to do great things for, for conservation and stewardship. I, I couldn't agree more. So let's step a little bit away from the CSP and current stuff uh, for a second. Um, and let's go back to January 2010. Uh, at the time, CSP was still Center for Coastal Conservation. And, um, you know, we were working as a coalition with CCA, with the International Game Fish Association, uh, NMMA, the National Marine Manufacturers Association, and the Bill Foundation. And you, as a representative for all of these groups through the Center for Coastal Conservation, testified before a congressional committee about the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And your testimony was very powerful and very emotional. But what it really did was bring a powerful argument about the economic impact of recreational saltwater fishing. 
Could you talk about why, when you were providing that congressional testimony, you chose to use economic impact as your primary argument? Yeah, Sid, you know, um, the the Deepwater Horizon um, tragedy affected folks all over the Gulf. Um, and the uh, and the long term uh, impacts were, of course, going to be apparent, not just from the from the volunteers who were who were spraying seabirds with Dawn uh, with Dawn dishwashing liquid, but but the long term impacts were going to also be felt by mom and pop bait and tackle shops, um, by coastal uh, by coastal grocery stores by marinas and marine dealers and restaurants all, all, all uh, along the coast in, uh, in often very remote locations. And it's so easy when there's a major national news story about, uh, about an environmental challenge like Deepwater Horizon to focus on, uh, to focus on things other than those who live on the coast and who derive their living from the coast. Um, so I, uh, I chose to, to highlight a guy named Ryan Lambert, um, who, uh, whose, whose lodge is, uh, down the Mississippi river, down, down highway 23, uh, almost to Venice. And, uh, all of his bookings were literally disappearing, um, overnight. Um, and he is a giant of a man, um, and, uh, and deep water horizon, uh, almost, almost broken. I can report now some, you know, some, uh, some dozen plus years later, uh, that Ryan Lambert, um, and his guide service, um, are doing, uh, doing quite well. And there has been a tremendous recovery all along the coast. I, I like to pay attention to, to the, to the impact on people. Um, because the livelihoods that are affected by a robust marine recreational uh, fishery matter to me. And I think it's important that whenever we have the opportunity to, to tell their stories, that we, take, that we take that chance. You used the word recovery there. And in that testimony, you talked a little bit about the potential for recovery. And you just mentioned the recovery of a particular business. But the other end of recovery is also the recovery of the fisheries. Have the fisheries also recovered to where guides like the one you're talking about um, can operate with uh, confidence now that that fishery is healthy? Um, I say yes. Um, You know, I have my kids out on the Gulf whenever I can possibly get to the Gulf uh, to ensure that we are catching, cleaning, and eating the Lord's bounty that is right at our doorstep. Um, I think the fishery, uh, the, the fishery um, has certainly recovered, um, and I think um, you know that the, the industry has uh, has learned a lot from the mistakes made that, that led to, to Deepwater Horizon. I have to say too that when I was listening to your testimony, you make some off the cuff remarks about quote returning to normal and how after the oil spill we would get back to normal. And man, hearing those words now in the shadow of getting back to normal and the new normal really struck me as telling about how we're thinking about getting the fishing industry back to normal in our current situation. Are we going to have a new normal in the fishing industry or are we going back to an old normal? I mean, we're growing in numbers and normal seems out the door. Well, you know, um, the, um, the, the wait for a lot of boats uh, that are being built now, you know, can be 12 to 48 months um, because the demand is so high. And, you know, Sid, um, I think it's, it's notable that the new recruits to, 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 to saltwater fishing during COVID um, were looking for opportunities to get outdoors with their families. And many of them may have had, had other, other activities that they, uh, that they filled their spare time with. Um, and I can tell you every other activity uh, that filled a family's time, whether it was bowling or bicycling or whatever, those, um, those, uh, those activities are looking to scratch back the participants that left their activity. 
Um, and so while we've seen tremendous growth and the, uh, and, and the excise taxes and sales taxes that, uh, that flow through the North American model and back to the states that fund marine conservation and, and, and management, while they've certainly gone up, we've got to be mindful um, of keeping the, the angler conservationists that we have recruited through COVID and keeping them engaged in what we're doing. So yes, um, there's a new normal. Um, boat launches are full, um, weights are long for boats, uh, but you got to get in line so you can have the, uh, the durable goods for you to go, go enjoy your favorite pastime. Excellent. So I got one last question about that, that, uh, Deepwater Horizon testimony. It's cause I've, I've got to know you, you mentioned a small bait shop called the menopause. Did they make it? Are they still around? Anyone who's smart enough to name their bait shop with a great name like that has to have been smart enough to have made it. So tell me, tell me they're around. Um, you know, sadly they are not. The menopause was there for a long time, um, um, and if they had uh, made it all the way through last year, Sid, I can tell you Hurricane Ida came ashore right where the menopause was, and it absolutely wouldn't have made it after last year. That's heartbreaking. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk fishing for a bit. Uh, You're a Louisiana guy, and you and I can talk redfish and trout uh, endlessly, especially if you and I start pouring bourbon, as we've been known to do. But uh, I want to hear your thoughts on red snapper. And not necessarily red snapper policy, which is probably one of the most chaotic policy uh, trenches to wade into. But what what about you as an angler? How do you see the vitality of redfish, of uh, red snapper fishery now, a dozen years after Deepwater Horizon, and one of the most popularly sought after fish that we're looking at in in sport fishing these days? Well, you know, um, I feel like the red snapper fishery is 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 healthy. It is robust, and the science shows. Uh, that the abundance of red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico um, is three to four times um, what the federal government has thought that it was in recent years. Um, you know, the, um, the Congress a few years ago um, uh, authorized a big expenditure through the Sea Grant program to conduct an independent uh, great red snapper count, um, rather than using all of the same mechanisms that NOAA fisheries had been using for so long, they wanted something totally independent. They wanted the top scientists in the region to come together, and they were scientists. Um, Sid, you probably know from from UF, from LSU, from Texas A&M, from Bama, from Auburn, from Mississippi State. Uh, all the Sea Grant institutions came together. Uh, to assemble the the final and definitive count um, on um, on relative abundance of Gulf red snapper, uh, the count um, is quite literally three to four times uh, what uh, what NOAA Fisheries had thought that it was before. Um, you and I both know that in the snapper grouper complex the most aggressive of all of those fish that are in that complex is, is the red snapper. And they are no longer just on structure and at reefs in the Gulf of Mexico. They seem to have outstripped uh, their, their own typical habitat and have moved into shallower areas. Um, and, 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 and frankly, one of the reasons that the great red snapper count found so many fish was that they were sampling the uh, they called it the great uncharacterized bottom um, where where snapper were living near uh, near the pipelines that crisscross the bottom of the Gulf. Uh, they had not been properly sampled by NOAA fisheries over the years. Um, so I think the fishery is back in a big way. I am hopeful that as um, NOAA Fisheries works to calibrate the state-generated catch and effort data to the federal data that, we, that we're going to see an increase in the quota for both the, the, the recreational and the commercial sector um, this year. Um, and I feel like um, 
I can't wait for snapper season to start. All right. So you're the Louisiana in here. And let's face it, Red Snapper and Louisiana are, you know, go hand in hand, whether we want to, you know, point to Paul Prudhomme or whomever for that. But let's give my listening crew your inside strategy. What, what, how should we be fishing for Red Snapper this summer? Um, you know, Sid, um, Red Snapper are perhaps um, the, the, the easiest fish <laughs> to catch in the Gulf of Mexico. Pull up to any structure that you know, um, drop a line, um, and um, and we use, you know, cut bait. Uh, we drop a line, and we're kind of done fishing in about 30 minutes. I mean, um, as long as you can find structure, you can find, uh, can find red snapper. You know, uh, several years ago, when the government was, uh, was, when the federal government was focused on over-regulation, I was uh, was was headed to the Florida Panhandle, and I called Dr. Bob Ship, the great red snapper um, scientist, and I and and red snapper was closed, and I said uh, and I and I asked Dr. Bob where were some of the reefs off of uh, off of Orange Beach, Alabama, where we might go as a family, um, and what strategies would he employ if he was trying to avoid uh, to avoid catching red snapper, and Dr. Bob told me. Uh, to save the fuel, because uh, because on every reef that that he had built in the state of Alabama, on every reef that was near the Panhandle of, of Florida, that the aggressive red snapper would get to the bait before any of the other uh, fish in the snapper group were complex. Bob's advice was to save the fuel. So get to the structure, drop almost anything, and you'll come home with, with a limited snapper. Excellent. Oh, I can't wait for that to start again this summer. It's one of my favorite things to do in the summer. All right. So let's ask one final question to wrap up this great conversation. And this is tradition here on the Fishing Professor Show. I ask all of our guests this as the final question. What is your grail fish? What's that one fish that sits atop your bucket list, your golden ring and white whale all rolled up into that moment of, I got to catch this fish? Well, um, I will tell you, um, it's probably the grail fish for a lot of your listeners. Um, it's a blue marlin. Um, I have uh, caught uh, caught other marlin. I've caught sailfish. Uh, my oldest daughter has caught a blue marlin while I was on the boat. Um, but I've never uh, been in line for the chair. I've never uh, I've been close to it. Um, but I have seen it. I've witnessed it, um, and it uh, and it gives me something uh, to live for each morning when I wake up to know that I'm going to get to catch a blue marlin sooner or later. So you're, you're telling me that given your relationship with one of the offshore gurus and John Brownlee, that he has not put you on a blue marlin yet. You know, we've caught permit, we've caught everything you can imagine, uh, but we've not been blue marlin fishing. Perhaps I may need to prevail on John Brownlee at Yellowfin <laughs> Yachts and, uh, and, and get me to the fish. That sounds like the plan to get that grail. So Jeff, yes, thanks, indeed. thanks so much for the time and for being here. And thanks for everything you and your crew at CSP are doing to help protect the rights of saltwater anglers. I've really loved our conversations over the years, and I'm grateful that we've had the opportunity to have one on the Fishing Professor Show. And I got to say, I'm actually amazed that we made it through this without our standard tiger gator banter. So, uh, I, I, I don't know if I should wrap up with the go gators or if that's just going to light the, light the fire again. So we don't need to get to get too far down the go tigers, um, road, but Hey, Sid, thank you for your leadership. Uh, we so much appreciate uh, the incredible communication that you, you roll out to, to so many folks uh, in, in our world. Thank you very much. Thanks Jeff. Be well. All right, them barking dogs is telling us that it's time for the bourbon break because nothing goes better with water than bourbon. And we all need a break from the fishing once in a while to sit back, sip a smooth whiskey, and meditate on all that is fine. 
In today's bourbon break, I want to kick back to an old tradition, to a bourbon that's been an American classic for 130 years. That's right, today I'm pouring Four Roses. And yeah, that's true. Four Roses has been around since at least the 1860s, even though the brand wasn't trademarked till 1888. Of course, like all good bourbons, there's a couple of great stories about the history of Four Roses, but unfortunately, there's also a discrepancy among tellers of those tales about how Four Roses came about. The familiar account is that Four Roses was founded by Rufus Mathewson Rose, who, after serving as a foot soldier in the Confederate Army, founded Mountain Springs Distillery just north of Atlanta, Georgia. The story goes that the bourbon is named for Rose, his brother Origen, his two sons, and hence the Four Roses. But the current distillery webpage doesn't even mention Rose, indicating that the bourbon got its name when whiskey man Paul Jones Jr. named his bourbon after the occasion where his true love said yes with a corsage of four red roses. Either way, those are great origin stories, and this is a fine bourbon that harkens back to just after the American Civil War. The Four Roses brand is now owned by the Japanese company Kirin Brewing Company. You probably know their beer, Kirin, which is popular at sushi restaurants where they serve our favorite critter, fish. And it's distilled in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, where master distiller Brent Elliott oversees the operation. Chances are that a lot of you are familiar with Four Roses because this was the bourbon that our grandparents kept. I certainly remember the distinctive Four Rose label in my grandparents' liquor cabinet. Nowadays, Four Roses produces three bourbons, Four Roses Bourbon, Four Roses Single single Barrel, and Four Roses Small Batch. Now, lately, I've been drinking from a bottle of the Four Roses Small Batch, which I will admit I have fallen in love with. But let's face it, that's probably not a great starting point since I tend to fall in love with most bourbons. But you have to know, too, that Brent Elliott has explained in a lot of the whiskey media that there are really four recipes for the small batch they produce. So there's always a uniqueness with each batch. The small batch bottle retails between $30 and $40, so it's an affordable pleasure. I love how smooth this bourbon is. It's got a nose that can only be described as subtle, but the rich flavor is punctuated with caramel and a honey-like dominance with hints of sweet spice and toast coming from the oak. It's one of those bourbons that emphasizes the rye without overtaking the joy of the corn mash. This old-timer has the mellow body that makes it ideal for sipping neat and has a soft, smooth finish. So yeah, I'm liking the Four Roses Small Batch. Sure, there are other great bourbons out there, but at this price point, Four Roses Small Batch stands up to just about anything else in the price range and is well worth keeping in your cabinet. So that's it for the bourbon break for this week. But before we go, as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Skipper's in Tampa, Florida, where the drinks flow, the grouper sandwiches and oysters are spectacular, and the reggae plays all night. Just remember, like William Faulkner said, civilization begins with distillation. Drink on, my friends. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. Now let's get back to the fishing. All right, let's get into another top 10. This week, I want to take a look at my top 10 favorite top water lures for speckled trout. Oh man, there is something magnificent about topwater fishing for speckled trout. I especially love topwater trout fishing just as the earliest light of the morning starts to emerge and as the last light of the day fades away. On calm days when you can hear trout popping baits on the surface, that distinct, almost hollow smack on the surface that alerts you to trout feeding, that's just an awesome sound. And when you make that first cast into the quiet morning or evening air and hear the plop of your lure in the water, man, that right there, that's the golden time. And when that yellow mouth maw of a trout hammers the lure, that golden hue is the thing of dreams. So yeah, 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 let's talk topwater and trout. 
And just a reminder that this is my top 10 list. There is no sponsorship influence here. And as always, given my friendships and professional relationships with some great lure manufacturers out there, I just want to say to everyone I know in the industry, you ain't paying me. So no complaining that I didn't favor your product just because we're friends. So let's count them down. At number 10, Paul Brown Soft Dog Topwater. This is a great take on a traditional topwater design that we usually see in a hard plastic like Hedden's Classic Zara Spook. But the Paul Brown version is made of a soft, biteable body that combines the topwater action of a traditional design with a bite-enticing soft material. I also like the soft material here because the lure makes less of a splash when it's cast. The Soft Dog is a three and three quarter inch lure that comes in eight color patterns. At number nine, we've got Bomber's Badonkadonk. It's a great casting top water that really is at its best in calm water. And it's those calm mornings when the trout bite is active that the lure, like the Badonkadonk, gets the fish fired up. The Badonkadonk comes in two sizes, a three and a half inch half ounce version and a four inch three quarter ounce version. And there are nine color variations. Sitting at the number eight position, we've got Bagley's Rattling Finger Mullet. Now, I fell in love with Bagley's Finger Mullet more than 25 years ago, and you may have heard me say this on other top tens. And now the company has upgraded the mullet into an even more effective topwater lure. The old model was made of balsa wood, but the reimagined version has a hard plastic body that is so much more durable. There are nine color options available in two sizes. But when it comes to trout, I really like the natural mullet pattern. Oh, and if you want to learn more about Bagley's Rattling Finger Mullet, be sure to check out my review of these lures over at InventiveFishing.com or on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. The review's got some really interesting stuff about the history of Bagley lures as well. All right, at number seven, I'm going to go with Yozuri's 3D Inshore Top Knock Pencil, which is part of the more recently added Yozuri 3D Inshore series. The 3D Inshore Top Knock Pencil is a reimagined pencil lure that instead of resting in the water with the aft end down, it lies flat on the surface of the water. It's also got a single rattle in the tail that adds great sound attractant, and that weighted rattle contributes to the lure's castability. It comes in 14 color options, and I've had great trout luck with the real pilchard pattern and the peanut bunker version. At number six is the Head and Saltwater Super Spook and Super Spook Junior. The Super Spook is flat out classic. The Zara Spook line has been one of the world's favorite lures since 1939. The Zara Spook was first developed by the Hedden Company as a wooden lure named the Zaragoza 6500 series lure. And in 1939, the plastic version was introduced and following the naming of other plastic lures, Hedden added the Spook to the name to classify it as a plastic lure. The Zara Spook pretty much invented the walk the dog retrieval strategy for topwater fishing. The Super Spook and the Super Spook Juniors remain one of the best topwater lures out there, and I rely on them in my trout topwater arsenal. And number five, let's go with a really great trout topwater, Miralure's CI's Papa Mullet. The Papa Mullet was designed with trout in mind. Its aerodynamic three and five eighths inch body casts great, and that streamlined, streamlined body sits nicely at the surface and walks the dog easily and fluidly. Plus, the flat face of the lure makes the Papa Mullet a great popper. It's available in eight color patterns, and when it comes to trout, I recommend Miralure's trout pattern. Yeah, it seems a little cannibalistic, but the orange face and golden body just seem to attract the trout. Coming in at number four, I'm going to go with one of the poppers that I fish with a lot for trout, Shimano's Pop Orca. And yes, you can check out Inventive Fishing's new product introduction for the Pop Orca that we filmed at iCast in 2016 and my video gear review of the Pop Orca, both available at InventiveFishing.com or on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. I love the unique design on this popper, really unlike any popper out there. It's In its design, it's got a bubble chamber that has this wide open mouth that pushes water through the lure chamber and shoots it out the top of the lure, creating a lot more commotion than other poppers I've used. It also leaves a really solid bubble trail. It's got through wire construction and really strong hooks, making it one of my favorite poppers, particularly when I'm fishing topwater for trout. It comes in three sizes, a three and a half inch version, a four and a half inch version, and a five and seventh eighth 
version. I prefer the two smaller versions when I'm targeting trout. They come rigged with two treble hooks or two modified circle hooks. There are only four color options, but the colors are carefully selected to be bite enticing colors. At number three, I'm going to go with a classic lure, a lure that really helped define topwater fishing, and that's Mirror Lure's topwater dogs. And here I'm grouping together the Pro Dog, the Pro Dog Junior, the She Dog, the She Pup, the Top Dog, and the Top Dog Junior. The overall Top Dog Lure series are fantastic trout lures. You have to love the eyes on these lures and the great color option they come in. But what really makes the Top Dog series such a renowned topwater lure is its swimming action. It's got great twitching, jittery movement that suggests the wounded bait fish struggling at the surface. All right, at my runner-up, my next favorite top trout, topwater trout lure is the Rapala Skitterwalk. The Skitterwalk is a dog walking type lure. It's got a fantastic lean body design and phenomenal walking action. The large internal rattle gives the Skitterwalk great sound attractants. The great 3D holographic eyes and the 22 color variations are just fantastic. I will say my favorite colors are the bone, chartreuse, the gold mullet, the redfish, the trout, and of course the classic redhead. I'm always a sucker for the classic redhead. So that brings me to my favorite topwater lure for targeting trout. But before we get to that lure, let's reel them back in and get a quick recap of the other nine lures on my list. At number 10, Paul Brown Soft Dog Topwater. At number nine, Bomber's Badonkadonk. At number eight, Bagley's Rattling Finger Mullet. At seven, Yozuri's 3D Inshore Top Knock Pencil. At six, the classic Head and Zara Spook. At five, Mirror Lure's CI Papa Mullet. At four, we've got Shimano's Pop Orca. At three, the Topwater Dogs from Miralure. And at number two, Rapala's Skitterwalk. And that leaves us at number one. And my number one Topwater favorite fishing for trout lure is Unfair Lure's Dog Walker. This is a topwater that has great movement in the water. And though I love fishing with it in calm water, it creates enough agitation that it's also visible in a light chop as well. Not all topwaters will do that. The dog walker, as, it, as its name implies, is a walk-the-dog style lure, but unlike a lot of other dog walking lures, the unfair dog walker creates a much narrower walk path, keeping the walking action in tight to its travel path. I think that this tighter path keeps the attention of the trout focused in on the lure. It allows the trout to target the lure a bit more effectively, keeping their attack on a straighter path rather than an erratic chase and hunt. The dog walker is a 4.3 inch lure. It's available in 20 color variations. It's designed to be used in conjunction with 12 to 30 pound class line, but frankly, I use it on eight to 10 pound line a lot when targeting trout and it does just dandy. I also like that the dog walker, dog walker uses Unfair Lure's unique 3D bleeding gill effect, which adds a great visual aspect to the look of a wounded bait fish. One of the other unique features about the dog walker is that it's rigged with transverse treble hooks. Now, what this means is that the barb of the hook protrudes to the outside of the hook bend, not to the inside like most hooks. I find that this makes for easier release and does less damage on the south, soft mouths of a trout. I also like that Paul Van Reenen has designed the dog walker with a barrel swivel instead of a traditional ring eye for tying to the lure. This reduces line twist and lets the lure move more freely than does a standard open eye. So yes, I am a fan of the Unfair Lures dog walker for targeting speckled trout. So that's this week's top 10 list, top water for trout. And yeah, I know you have your disagreements with my list, so feel free to email me, especially if you think there's a top water for trout you think I should take a look at. Or if you're a manufacturer and you want me to take a look at your product, shoot me an email and let me know what I need to look at. You can always email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to the list for my future top 10s. That's the top 10 for the fishing professor this week. We'll get back to the show. Wow. I can't believe we got to the end of this week's broadcast that quickly. Time sure flies when you're having fun. And I don't know about you, but I certainly have fun with every episode of the broadcast. And I hate to see this one come to an end. 
I almost hear Mr. Rogers singing the goodbye song. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling you're growing inside. But that does bring us to the end of this week's episode. And I want to thank the president of the Center for Sport Fishing Policy, Jeff Angers, for the great conversation this week. And I also want to thank him for the work that he and the Center do to help protect our rights as anglers. If you want to learn more about what the CSP does or how you can get involved, be sure to check out their web pages at sportfishingpolicy, all one word, dot com. Now, before we say goodbye, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The boat is on the trailer. I say again, the boat is on the trailer. And that brings us to the end of another Fishing Professor show. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to the channel so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week, and I hope you'll give a listen as soon as it drops on Wednesday. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor Rodcast with everyone you know. There are so many ways to access the Rodcast that neither you nor your friend should ever be without access. You'll find the Rodcast on our hosting site at thefishingprofessor.podbean.com and on the Podbean app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player FM, the Samsung Podcast app, and Podchaser. As always, too, if you've got a comment or a question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific products, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. Be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing web pages, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. I'll be back next week with another episode, and until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on.